You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Yeah, I mean, dig into the real history of this country and the fact that it was built on blood. You can't be neutral on a moving train, 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 train. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn, taking a look at society, media, and politics in the U.S. and beyond. That opening music is from Vinnie Paz. That track is Writings on disobedience. So the Congress has passed and sent to the president a new COVID relief bill, which has a number of different provisions and which also left out a number of different important provisions. Uh, the most well-known and well and, and, and uh, often spoken about provision of the new COVID bill is $600 stimulus checks for adults in the U.S. And the reporting on the passage of this bill got very muddled because the bill was passed at the very last minute, along with other legislation passed at the very last minute to keep the government operational, which is the big omnibus spending bill that gets passed every year. And so there's tons and tons of things in that bill, some of which got conflated with components of the CARES Act because of the way this got passed. Regardless of all that, there were hundreds of billions of dollars passed to finance all kinds of things and to support all kinds of organizations, groups, and and corporations. Um beyond those direct stimulus payments to U.S. citizens. Before all that happened, this first piece is written by Jake Johnson of CommonDreams.org and talks about the the battle on the Senate floor uh, before all of that took place. Senator Bernie Sanders on Friday took to the Senate floor to once again make the case for sending another round of $1,200 stimulus checks to working-class Americans, denouncing as unconscionable the fact that U.S. billionaires have seen their wealth grow by $1 trillion during nine months of crisis, while ordinary people have received just one direct payment from Congress. Quote, $1 trillion for billionaires, One $1,200 check for the working class, said the Vermont senator. That is immoral, and that has got to change. Following Senator Josh Hawley's unsuccessful effort earlier Friday, Sanders requested unanimous consent to pass legislation that would provide $1,200 direct payments to U.S. adults and $500 to children, a relief proposal modeled after the stimulus checks provided under the CARES Act. Senator Ron Johnson, Republican of Wisconsin, who objected to Hawley's unanimous consent request, once again spoke to block Sanders' attempt to pass the direct payments, declaring that, quote, 
we do not have an unlimited checking account, a concern that did not stop him from voting to give massive tax breaks to the rich and large corporations in 2017. In his floor speech, Sanders said, providing another round of direct payments amid widespread and growing suffering, quote, is not a radical idea. Noting that President Donald Trump and an overwhelming majority of Americans across party lines support additional checks. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, in remarks just ahead of Sanders, also endorsed the demand for $1,200 payments. The American people cannot wait any longer. They need economic relief now, said Sanders. Every working-class American needs $1,200, $2,400 for couples, and $500 for kids. Sanders' latest push for direct payments came as congressional leaders continued to negotiate the final details of a $900 billion relief package that includes stimulus checks of $600 in addition to enhanced unemployment benefits, funds for vaccine distribution, and other programs. With the government shutdown looming, the House and Senate late Friday passed a two-day spending bill to give lawmakers more time to complete a relief package and sprawling year-end funding bill. The government will shut down Sunday night if Congress fails to act. Sanders said on the Senate floor Friday that he, quote, will object to passage of an omnibus government funding bill if Congress does not also approve a coronavirus relief measure containing substantial direct payments. The truth is that the working families of this country today are probably in worse economic condition than at any time since the Great Depression, said Sanders. Millions of people are unable to pay their rent and worry about being evicted. Hunger is literally at the highest level it has been in several decades, and in the midst of this terrible, terrible pandemic, we got tens of millions of people who cannot afford to go to a doctor. That is unacceptable. And that piece mentioned uh, Senator Ron Johnson. And while this podcast does not have an award such as um, Asshole of the Month or something uh, along those lines, that would be really appropriate for Ron Johnson in this setting. We do have a segment. We call names and addresses. One of the first times I talked to Judy Berry on the phone, and I had never met her, I said, Judy, you know, the earth is not dying. It's being killed. And the people who are killing it have names and addresses. What I mean by that is through power structure research, through hunting very carefully, we can find out the names and addresses of the people who really have their foot on our necks, the people who are really causing the damage. And then nonviolently, my vision, my dream is that thousands, thousands, millions of people go to those homes, go to the places where they shop, go to the places where they take their vacations, sit in the doorways, lie in front of the cars, and when they're hauled away to jail, other people take their place. Surround them, put them in jail. Oh yes, I know it's an air-conditioned jail and the food's pretty good, but they're in lager, they're surrounded, like it, like in uh, Montreal, uh, like at Genoa. They're behind the barbed wire, they're behind the concrete. We've got them in prison, we've got to understand that they're afraid of us, all right? Let's make sure that they can't enjoy their ill-gotten gain.
And while we usually uh, reserve our names and addresses focus for corporate malfeasance, the details behind Senator Ron Johnson's um, blockade of $1,200 stimulus checks for every adult American absolutely earn him the dishonor of being uh, included in that group of corporate uh, scoundrels and miscreants. This piece is written by David Sirota and Andrew Perez. And this is published by dailyposter.com. Millionaire Republican cites deficit to block aid after enriching himself with special tax cuts. Republican Senator Ron Johnson on Friday moved to block emergency survival checks to millions of Americans, citing concerns about the federal deficit. Johnson's move not only follows his vote for a massive $500 billion corporate slush fund, it also follows his successful effort to enrich himself with a giant tax cut that expanded the deficit. Johnson, who is worth an estimated $39 million, led the fight in 2017 to create special tax breaks for so-called pass-through businesses or real estate shell companies. Johnson was one of several Republican senators who backed the last-minute provisions inserted in the bill and who listed income from those pass-through entities on their federal financial disclosure forms. Based on those federal filings, Johnson stood personally to reap up to $205,000 from the tax cut provisions he championed. Final disclosure records in, reviewed by the Daily Poster show Johnson and his wife own a limited liability corporation, which is the kind of pass-through entities that were targeted for tax cuts by Johnson's 2017 legislation. Their LLC owns an industrial building in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, that is worth between $5 million and $25 million, and generated as much as $1 million in income last year. In all, the tax legislation Johnson backed is projected to increase the deficit by $1.9 trillion over 10 years, according to estimates from the Congressional Budget Office. On Friday, Johnson moved to block a bipartisan proposal from Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders and Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri to give Americans emergency $1,200 checks amid a sudden increase in poverty and mass starvation across the country. Johnson argued that the direct payment proposal would be, quote, mortgaging our children's future, an argument that he did not make when he led the fight to personally enrich himself with a massive tax cut only three years ago. And there you have it. There you have the, uh, the standard Congress critter out there doing the dirty deeds they do. Um, this, is, this is, unfortunately, how many in our Congress work. They work to enrich themselves because they're part of the elite. They work to enrich the elite, the elite, and themselves, and they benefit from it by getting those same elite to contribute to their campaigns, and so the cycle continues until we destroy it. 
So uh, as I don't have an, an asshole of the month award, uh, Senator Johnson will will get this tactic named after him forevermore in the future. When I see and hear and discuss extreme acts of congressional cronyism, I will refer to them as pulling a Johnson. And if you hold any credence in the theory that cutting taxes for the rich lifts all boats, quote unquote, and I've talked about that before, not everybody has a boat in that scenario. But but if you believe the, the rhetoric from some that cutting taxes on the rich benefits all, for they invest their money, and those investments hire new workers, and those workers get paid a wage, etc., 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 you are forgiven for believing in those people who spread those untruths, because... There's not been a lot of clear studies, or maybe I should phrase it differently, any studies in the past that have clearly shown this to be a giant fucking lie have not gotten the press and not gotten uh, a buy-in from those Congress critters for the same reason, because they don't want to believe it, because if they don't if they don't, whether they believe it or not, if they can't sell you the lie, if they can't sell you the opposite of the fact, then they they lose all pretense for, for what they're doing. So, just released in December 2020 is Working Paper 55, The Economic Consequences of Major Tax Cuts for the Rich. This is released by International Inequalities Institute. Abstract. This paper uses data from 18 OECD countries over the last five decades to estimate the causal effects of major tax cuts for the rich on income inequality, economic growth, and unemployment. OECD is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. It's an international organization that purports to work to build better policies for better lives. The nations in this study are ones that we might call economically developed, quote-unquote, Western, though not all are. Uh, Japan is included, as is New Zealand. Um, here's a quick rundown. U.S., United Kingdom, Sweden, New Zealand, Italy, Netherlands, Germany, Canada, Australia, Norway, Japan, Ireland, Finland, Denmark, Belgium, Austria, Switzerland, France. So predominantly European, uh, as well as a few other major nations of the world, um, significantly notably absent China or Russia, uh, you know, two, two of the, the largest and most developed nations out there. Um, but that'll give you an, an idea of who they focused on in making these assessments. First, we use a new encompassing measure of taxes on the rich to identify instances of major reductions in tax progressivity. 
Then, we look at the causal effects of these episodes on economic outcomes by applying a non-parametric generalization of the difference in differences indicator that implements Mahalanobis matching in panel data analysis. Yeah, this stuff is all over my head too. We find that major reforms reducing taxes on the rich lead to higher income inequality as measured by the top 1% share of pre-tax national income. The effect remains stable in the medium term. In contrast, such reforms do not have any significant effect on economic growth and unemployment. So there you have their abstract and their, their, their findings. Here's a little bit more, and I won't go too deep into this because like I said, when you get down into the nitty gritty of their methods, a lot of that goes right over my head. Recent years have seen a resurgence in academic research on income inequality, driven by the influential body of work by Piketty and co-authors, charting the evolution of top incomes in the advanced economies over the course of the 20th century. A central finding from that literature is that while top incomes fell for several decades after the Second World War, they turned a corner and began rising. Most dramatically, in the Anglo-Saxon economies from the 1980s onwards. Correlational evidence from cross-country panel studies has found that lower taxes on the rich, especially top marginal income tax rates, are strongly associated with rising top incomes over this period. Although studies exploring the effects of individual tax reforms paint a less clear picture, with some finding persistent effects on income inequality, and others only short-term effects. Proponents of tax cuts for the rich often argue for their beneficial effects on economic performance. In fact, this line of reasoning, focusing on efficiency gains and the reduction of behavioral distortions, was central to the arguments made for major tax reforms in the U.S., there are few empirical studies exploring the relationship between taxes on the rich and economic performance. And the evidence we do have is mixed. While some cross-country empirical studies find higher top marginal income tax rates and tax progressivity adversely affect economic growth, a number of other studies find no significant association. Given the lack of consensus in existing studies and the difficulties of drawing causal conclusions from macro-level panel data analyses, it remains an open empirical question how cutting taxes on the rich affects economic outcomes. In this paper, we use data from 18 OECD countries covering the last 50 years to investigate the effects of major tax cuts for the rich on income inequality, economic growth, and unemployment. We contribute to the existing empirical literature in two ways. First, we use a newly constructed comprehensive measure of taxes on the rich to identify years in which major tax cuts occurred across a wide range of advanced economies. And second, we move beyond correlational evidence on the economic effects of taxing the rich 
by applying a novel matching method that allows for the estimation of causal effects from time series cross-sectional data. And this, this introduction goes on to explain a little bit more about the methods. Um, our results show that for both matching methods, major tax cuts for the rich increase the top 1% share of pre-tax national income in the years following the reform. The magnitude of the effect is sizable. On average, each major reform leads to a rise in top 1% share of pre-tax national income of 0.8 percentage points. The results also show that economic performance as measured by real GDP per capita and the unemployment rate is not significantly affected by major tax cuts for the rich. The estimated effects for those variables are statistically indistinguishable from zero. And this finding holds in both the short and the medium run. So there you have it, the latest study. And there's a tremendous amount of detail to their methods and results in this study. Um, but the latest study on the economic consequences of major tax cuts for the rich, uh, released in December 2020, is out there now. You can find it at eprints.lse.ac.uk. Once again, it is the International Inequalities Institute that has put this out, which is part of the London School of Economics and Political Science. So while that piece takes a look at historically when uh, taxes are lowered for the super wealthy, do they have beneficial effects to the economy? This next piece takes a look at what's going on more recently. In fact, what's happening right now where major corporations are making enormous profits during COVID, but their employees are not always protected the way they should be. This piece is from Institute for Policy Studies. That's at ips-dc.org. And this uh, assessment is called Billionaire Wealth versus Community Health, Protecting Essential Workers from Pandemic Profiteers. This is by Bianca Augustin, Chuck Collins, Jonathan Heller, Sarah Michaelbust, and Omar Ocampo. There are few stories more sordid than the surging wealth gains of the world's billionaire class during a pandemic when so many have lost their lives, health, and livelihoods. A handful of billionaires and corporations have seen their wealth surge to record levels, in part as a result of their monopoly status and opportunism during the pandemic. For example, Walmart, Target, and Amazon benefited from their monopoly positions in the economy, with these three retailers considered, quote, essential, while their retail competitors were shut down. But the success, these businesses, the success of these businesses hasn't translated into better pay or safer working conditions for the employees showing up to work in a pandemic. Meanwhile, private equity firms have bought up essential businesses in the healthcare, grocery, and pet care industries, only to aggressively cut costs, skimp on worker safety, and load companies up with debt to boost their own profits.
Hundreds of thousands of essential workers employed by these companies have remained vulnerable and exposed. These frontline workers risk their lives every day to do the work that increases already obscene corporate wealth. This report focuses on a list of 12 emblematic bad actors. We call them the delinquent dozen. Corporations that should do significantly more to protect their workers as their owners and executives continue to reap billions. This report was produced by Bargaining for the Common Good, the Institute for Policy Studies, and United for Respect, published in partnership with Action Center on Race and Economy, Americans for Financial Reform, Jobs with Justice, New York Communities for Change, Step Up Louisiana, and Working Washington. Key Findings As of November 17, the combined wealth of 647 U.S. billionaires increased by almost $960 billion since mid-March, the beginning of the pandemic lockdown, an increase of nearly $1 trillion in less than a year. Since March, there are 33 new billionaires in the U.S. Driving this exploding inequality are 12 companies whose profits are coming at the expense of workers and communities. These delinquent dozen companies are emblematic of the corporate greed that has grown rampant over the last 40 years. They include retailers like Walmart, Amazon, Target, and Dollar Tree and Dollar Store, gig economy companies like Instacart, and food producers like Tyson Foods. Also included is the investment giant BlackRock and private equity firms like Leonard, Leonard Green Partners, Blackstone, Kohlberg, Kravis Roberts & Company, Cerberus Capital, BC Partners, and CVC Capital Partners. These private equity firms own several essential healthcare, grocery, and pet supply companies. Their business model of extreme cost cutting and debt loading to squeeze extra profits is fundamentally incompatible with protecting workers and communities during a pandemic. Ten billionaire owners of delinquent dozen companies have a combined worth of $433 billion. Since March 18, their combined personal wealth has ballooned by $127.5 billion, a 42% increase. These 10 billionaires are Jeff Bezos, Alice Robb and Jim Walton, Apoorva Mehta, John Tyson, Steve Schwartzman, Henry Kravis and George Roberts, and Steve Feinberg. Billionaire Wealth Increasing During the Pandemic Walmart Three owners of Walmart, Rob, Jim, and Alice Walton, have seen their combined personal wealth increase over $48 billion. In 2018, Walmart CEO Doug McMillian, yes, McMillian, I think that they chose him because of his name, made 1,118 times the pay of Walmart's median worker. Yet Walmart refuses to provide hazard pay for its workers. Amazon. The wealth of Amazon's Jeff Bezos has increased by 62% since mid-March, totaling $188.3 billion as of November 17. Bezos is now the richest person on earth. Meanwhile, 
an estimated 20,000 Amazon workers have been infected with COVID-19. And just in the last couple of weeks, Amazon has had to close a entire facility in New Jersey due to COVID. Instacart, CEO and founder Apoorva Mehta, became an instant billionaire in June 2020. Yet Instacart has overhired 300,000 new workers and failed to provide sufficient protections. Tyson Foods John H. Tyson, the billionaire owner of Tyson Foods, has seen his personal wealth increase over $600 million since the beginning of the pandemic. Meanwhile, an estimated 11,000 Tyson workers have been infected with COVID-19. Target CEO Brian Cornell paid 821 times the median worker at Target. The company has enjoyed a protected status as its competition was shut down during the pandemic as non-essential. The company enacted an already promised $2 increase in its starting wage, but also cut the pay of its Target-owned shipped delivery workers. Dollar General and Dollar Tree Dollar Tree CEO Gary Philbin is is paid 690 times his median paid worker. Dollar General CEO Todd Vesos is paid 824 times his median pay worker. The companies have profited tremendously during the pandemic, but understaffed stores and skimpy security pose some of the many risks to workers, including an increase in assaults, where dollar store workers were attacked for asking customers to wear masks. The investment fund giant BlackRock has a large ownership stake in both companies. Leonard Green Partners Prospect Health Leonard Green Partners owns Prospect Medical Holdings, a major owner of hospitals. A number of investigations of Prospect Medical have found poor infection control and maintenance at their facilities. Workers at Prospect have been pressing for better infection protections, hazard pay, and safer working conditions. Over the last several years, Leonard Green has also saddled Prospect Medical with debt while paying dividends to shareholders. Blackstone Private equity giant Blackstone owns Team Health, a company that demoted a whistleblower doctor who went public about the company's lack of COVID-19 safety precautions, and aggressive cost-cutting. Blackstone founder and CEO Steve Schwartzman has seen his personal wealth increase $4.1 billion since the beginning of the pandemic. Kohlberg, Kravis, Roberts & Company Henry R. Kravis and George R. Roberts, the two billionaire owners of the private equity giant Kohlberg, Kravis, Roberts & Company, KKR, have seen their wealth increase almost $3 billion since the beginning of the pandemic. KKR owns Envision Healthcare. In April 2020, Envision announced it was withholding some pay for doctors between $4 million to $5 million per practice for a group of about 16 to 30 doctors. During the same month, the president of emergency medicine reported a growing number of Envision doctors under quarantine. Cerberus Capital. Cerberus Capital owns a number of companies with frontline essential workers, including Albertsons and Safeway supermarkets. 
and Stewart Healthcare. Steve Feinberg, the billionaire co-founder of the private equity firm, has seen his personal wealth increase $276 million since the beginning of the pandemic. In June 2020, a group of Stewart Health doctors purchased a controlling stake in Stewart from Cerberus. Prior to that, the private equity giant drew fire for shutting down intensive care units in rural Massachusetts and failing to provide sufficient PPE equipment. Meanwhile, Safeway Markets had initial hazard pay that ended in June. Since then, COVID-19 infections have increased 161% in Safeway stores. BC Partners The UK-based BC Partners owns the pet supply company PetSmart, which benefited from its designation as an essential business. But that didn't stop PetSmart from furloughing and then permanently terminating workers across the U.S., causing them to lose health insurance and incomes. CVC Capital Partners CVC Capital Partners owns the pet supply company Petco, another essential business. CVC Partners just announced it is looking to take Petco public with a valuation of $6 billion, even with worker reports of serious health and safety issues. That's a brief outline of the information that you'll find in the full report. The report also comes with recommendations. Corporations and their billionaire owners and investors have the responsibility and more than enough resources to protect their employees during this extraordinary time. They must commit the resources necessary to put essential workers in their community's health and safety first. Corporations employing essential workers must immediately implement hazard pay of at least an extra $5 per hour. Provide substantial paid sick leave benefits for workers to stay home when ill, quarantine when exposed, and care for sick loved ones as well as paid bereavement leave for those who have had family members die from COVID-19. Provide regularly replace and upgrade high-quality personal protective equipment at no cost to all their essential workers. Establish workplace health councils to enable workers to participate actively in monitoring workplace conditions. To protect essential workers, policymakers must establish a presidential commission on essential workers with on-the-ground diverse worker representation. Pass an Essential Workers' Bill of Rights, developed in collaboration with workers' organizations at the local, state, and federal levels. Legislate the creation of workplace health councils so workers can monitor and participate in the enforcement of compliance with health and safety regulations and guidance. To rein in pandemic profiteering, policymakers must... Levy an emergency pandemic wealth tax on billionaires to raise $450 billion and fund protections for essential workers. Establish a pandemic profiteering oversight committee that goes beyond oversight of stimulus funds. Impose conditions on corporations receiving federal pandemic financial support, including the requirement to retain workers, preserve worker rights, and institute policies and procedures to protect workers from exposure to the virus. Pass the Stop Wall Street Looting Act, 
SWSLA to eliminate the carried interest loophole that enables private equity and hedge fund billionaires to pay lower tax rates. Once again, you can find this uh, entire study at ips-dc.org, and it is called Billionaire Wealth versus Community Health, Protecting Essential Workers from Pandemic Profiteers. And you would think if we had a rational system that our elected officials would be looking out for the electorate, for the voters, for the citizens, for the residents, for the people who get them into power. But of course, in the U.S., we don't have a rational system. Those elected officials look out for the people who funded getting them into power. They look out for the um, fundraisers, the the big spenders, the the campaign contributors that got them into power and will get them back into power or let them stay in power. But occasionally, the deeds of those congresspeople do trickle down, and occasionally, they do pass some legislation that offers some benefit to the average citizen. And we saw that, and we spoke about it earlier, in the CARES Act, in the the act that the emergency act that Congress passed towards the beginning of the COVID pandemic, which, among many other things, supplied uh, those $1,200 stimulus checks. And around that same time, Congress passed the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. And one of the major components of that act provided paid sick leave for employees who otherwise had none. Now, it was probably originally a a relatively strong uh, paid sick leave policy that got dramatically watered down with exclusions, excluding companies from from being required to follow it. But in the end, it, it turned out to be extremely helpful and effective where it was applied. This study actually takes a look at that and determines some of the uh, impact that that policy had. This is from healthaffairs.org. This is written by Stefan Pickler, Catherine Wen, and Nicholas R. Zybarth. It's titled, COVID-19 Emergency Sick Leave Has Helped Flatten the Curve in the United States. The U.S. is one of very few Organization for Economic cooperation and development, OECD countries, that does not guarantee universal access to paid sick leave for all workers. 27% of all U.S. employees and 17% of all U.S. full-time employees cannot take paid sick leave. In the food and accommodation industries, more than half of all employees cannot take paid sick leave. Amid the outbreak of coronavirus disease 2019, the question of whether a lack of paid sick leave contributes to the spread of disease has gained a new relevance. 
or relevance, has gained new relevance. Focusing on the pre-pandemic era, research has shown that employees who lack paid sick leave are more likely to go to work sick, have financial hardships, skip preventive health care, and spread contagious diseases. Economic models suggest that the contagious presenteeism behavior, working while sick with a contagious disease, decreases when employees gain access to paid sick leave, as they are more likely to stay home when ill. Who knew? Using variations in city and state-level sick pay mandates across localities and over time, research has shown that increasing sick leave coverage causally reduces the spread of influenza. After 15 years of partisan disagreement over the Federal Health Fam- Healthy Families Act, which proposes a federal sick leave mandate, the COVID-19 crisis led to the passage of a separate bipartisan emergency sick leave bill. On March 14, 2020, the House of Representatives passed the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, FFCRA, voting 340 to 40 in favor of passage. On March 18, 2020, the Senate approved the bill, 90-8, to and President Donald Trump signed it. The bill contains a provision that allows employees to take two weeks of COVID-19-related emergency sick leave coverage at full pay, up to a cap. In addition to other provisions, such as extended unemployment benefits, the bill also contains up to 12 weeks of paid family leave at two-thirds of daily pay for parents to take care of of their children as a result of closures of schools and childcare facilities. Businesses with more than 500 employees are exempt, which that is one of the major gaps in that particular law. So it is estimated that roughly half of the workforce is covered by the FFCRA. Given that 89% of private sector workers in firms with more than 500 employees already had access to paid sick leave, The paid sick leave provisions primarily benefit workers in smaller firms who did not have paid sick leave before implementation of the FFCRA. Surveys show that more than a quarter of covered firms actively make use of the law as of the beginning of May 2020. Previous research has shown that other policy measures such as stay-at-home orders and social distancing measures reduce the spread of the disease. Using mobility patterns from cell phone data, research also shows that Americans spent significantly more time outside their workplace after the full FFCRA enactment, April 1, 2020. However, to our knowledge, this article is the first to test whether the FFCRA, and specifically its emergency sick provisions, reduced the spread of COVID-19. From here, the article goes into great detail about the methods and the results from examining this data. Here's a little bit from a discussion section towards the end. Our findings show that states where employees gained access to paid sick leave because of the FFCRA had a statistically significant decrease of approximately 400 fewer confirmed new cases per state per day relative to the pre FFCRA, period, and to states that had already enacted sick pay mandates before enactment of the FFCRA. 
Thus, granting access to paid sick leave has helped flatten the curve in line with previous research and theoretical considerations. Prior research has shown that paid sick leave coverage induces contagious employees to take sick leave, thereby reducing influenza activity during normal times. And there are five footnotes referencing those studies there. However, to date, it has been unclear whether this mechanism is also effective during the COVID-19 crisis. And there's their, their study and their findings from their study indicate that indeed paid sick leave for, for employees um, reduces the incidence of COVID-19 cases. So, what's a congressperson to do when that provision is, uh, is out there and ready to expire? Well, as you might guess, if you've been uh, following along our exploration of how well Congress responds to the needs of the citizens and the residents of the U.S., the image isn't pretty. This piece is from gizmodo.com. And is written by Tom McKay. Here's a big fuck you from Congress to everyone else. The coronavirus relief bill passed this week at the end of December removes a requirement that employers provide at least two weeks of paid sick leave at full salary if their employees contract the coronavirus. The bill also strips requirements that employers provide two weeks of leave at two-thirds salary to those employees caring for a relative with the virus and 10 weeks of paid family and medical leave at two-thirds salary for those whose daycares or schools are shut down thanks to the pandemic. Both the Democratic and Republican parties confirmed to BuzzFeed that those protections for workers originally implemented in the Families First Coronavirus Relief Act of March 2020 were not extended in order to please Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. <clears throat> there is not a good description for how frustrating and how angering this action is. They are so entirely out of touch with the needs of the public and are only connected to the needs of their donors and the needs for themselves to stay in power that they do un these unimaginable, otherwise unimaginable actions. The coronavirus pandemic is at its peak. Well, I only can say that be because I'm assuming it won't go a lot higher, but you know what? I could uh, let me backtrack and say the coronavirus pandemic is at its highest point that it has ever been here in the United States and and elsewhere, largely in Europe, um, where a brand new strain of coronavirus is ravaging the UK at the moment and has been detected in Canada. Do at this time say that the safety net that we constructed back in March 
when this pandemic was only just beginning, when we thought it was perhaps at its peak, when we thought it was it was at such an extreme level, we had to take emergency measures. That was somewhere in the in the neighborhood of 25 percent of where we see it now in many places. Only only the 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 full and complete understanding that Congress does not work for us allows me to understand why they might act in this manner. Back to the story. According to BuzzFeed, the federal government will continue to extend a refundable tax credit for employers paying sick leave until March, meaning paid leave will still end up costing employers nothing other than inconvenience in the long run, but it's up to their whims and level of avarice as to whether they choose to do so. One Senate GOP aide told the site that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi had initially refused to sign off on the bill Saturday night, but eventually conceded because of the tax credit extension. The original paid sick leave requirement wasn't exactly sweeping in and of itself, as employers with over 500 staff were exempt and those with less than 50 employees could file for exemptions. The U.S. is the only wealthy nation in the world to not require employers to provide paid sick leave to workers. As the current federal minimum wage of $7.25 to 40-hour work weeks come to $580 pre-tax. The coronavirus relief legislation allocates just $600 in stimulus checks to Americans, translating to a total near total wipeout for those who get sick and can no longer claim paid sick leave. As BuzzFeed noted, a health affairs study found that states which did not previously have paid sick leave requirements saw around 400 fewer confirmed cases per state per day. Does that sound familiar? Yes, it was the study I just read. Under the law, extending these protections by four to six months would cost an estimated $8 billion to $13 billion a relative pittance compared to the over $3 trillion in pandemic spending so far. The study found that, quote, contagious presenteeism, in which sick workers continue to show up for their duties lest they lose out on pay, appeared to play a significant role. The extended sick leave requirements will now expire at the end of 2020. Brian Mitnick, a 38-year-old school district IT worker in Hampton, Virginia, told the Washington Post he was infected in August and found the emergency sick leave provisions to be a lifesaver as he and his wife and four children quarantined for two weeks. Quote, I was not 100% after, but I had been cleared by my doctor and was concerned to stay out longer because it wouldn't cover my full salary. I guess I could have made it work but it would have just been really, really tight, Mitnick told the Post. Knowing that we had that security was so helpful. Nearly 18.1 million Americans are estimated to have tested positive for the novel coronavirus as of Tuesday, with nearly 321,000 deaths, according to the John Hopkins University of Medicine tracker. The true tally is almost certainly much higher due to undercounting. 
Also, I'm reading this article at least a few days, if not longer, after it was published. So let's take a look at where those John Hopkins figures are for the U.S. today. Currently, in the United States, according to John Hopkins, and this is on December 25th, 7.23 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 18,939,451 people in the United States have tested positive for coronavirus, and 331,732 have passed away. And that will wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. If you want to check out all the back episodes, you can go to youcan'tbeneutral.com. Find some links on that site. You'll find a link there to send me a message. You'll also find some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. You can also follow on Twitter at YCBNeutral. Now, a moment of Zin. Thanks for listening. But in fact, this is a class society, and, and you could start a history of the United States with that sentence. The history of the United States is a history of class struggle. And it would be absolutely accurate. But can you imagine somebody writing a let's say, a textbook on American history for our very vulnerable students and starting off talking about our history, being a history of class struggle. Can you imagine any major publisher publishing a book like that with that first sentence? Would it take very long for the publisher to go through that manuscript before rejecting it? And yet, it is an absolutely true statement. From the very beginning uh, on the North American continent, uh, from the, those first centuries of what is called the colonial period, the period before the American Revolution, we were a class society. We didn't all come here as pilgrims. I remember, I remember going to school, my, uh, my impression was that those people who came from England all dressed in the same simple way. It was a very egalitarian society and they signed the Mayflower Compact, which proved it. And, but no, in fact, there are people who came here as black slaves and there were other people who came here as indentured servants. Large numbers of women came as, you might say, uh, servants and sex slaves uh, to serve the men who were already here, the labor force that had to be satisfied in some way. Others came here with enormous grants of land given by the king or given by parliament. And so from the beginning they were very rich and, and very poor and that pattern continued all through American history. And the poor resisted and rebelled, and there were slave rebellions, and there were servants' rebellions, and, and the poor uh, of the colonies rioted. And the 
of the flower riot, uh, the bread riot, People attack the warehouses where the flour is stored. Uh, flour is not being made available to them because they can't afford the prices that are being charged for the flour. And they storm and they, and they open up the, the warehouse and they take the flour so they can make bread and feed their families. Uh, riots against impressment. Riots because they're being impressed to fight the wars of the British uh, in the uh, 18th late 17th and 18th centuries. This is all before the American Revolution. Tenants' insurrections against landlords. Uh, crowds marching onto jails and freeing the prisoners who've been put in prison because of failure to pay their debts. 